I'll pray again. Yes, sir. Father in thanks for this day. Thanks for this new place to uh, worship and learn. Help us to uh, figure everything out today and uh, enjoy you and enjoy each other. Thanks for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> so Pastor Michael last week talked about the, the big three feasts of the Jewish year. What were the first two Feast of Unleavened Bread and First Fruits. What's the other name for Unleavened Bread Feast? Passover. Then we have First Fruits. What's the other name for that? Harvest. Harvest, yeah. And what's the fancy churchy name for it? Pentecost. Pentecost. Oh. Yeah, Lent is like before this. Oh. But that's more, that's a Christian name. We're talking about the Jewish one. <clears throat> so the big three. And uh, what did everybody have to do? Who is required to be at these? Today is called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or if you want a fancy Hebrew Sukkot. Can you guys say Sukkot? Sukkot. You know what Sukkot is? It's not what you were to It's a <laughs> It's kind of like a shack, you know. So basically, um, what's kind of interesting is this is basically what shepherds would put up in their field so that they wouldn't get sunburned, is they put up a little shack so that they would uh, not get sunburned and faint and pass out. <clears throat> so we're going to be looking at what was God teaching them, what was God telling them, and what is God telling us through the feast of... Of booths. So let's see. Rachel, can you read Deuteronomy 16? You can read both those verses there. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in, in the produce of, I mean, from, sorry, from your threshing floors and your wine press. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the feast of unleavened bread and the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty handed. Okay, so what kinds of things should we be anticipating about the feast of booths from the, these verses? <clears throat> Yeah, there's gonna be lots of food. So this is called the feast of food. So they're bringing. What are they bringing with them? 
Wine. So there's wine, and we would say. Wheat. Bakery products, wheat, stuff from your threshing floor. That's how they milled their, uh, milled their wheat. <coughs> you shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. What do you, what's, what do you think that's about? <coughs> Where are they going to bring stuff? Who's the food for? Priests. Who's, yeah. And who's the food not for? <coughs> who's not hungry? God. God. Yeah, so they're not bringing, make sure you bring me some stuff because I'm hungry. No, we're bringing stuff because God has been good. He's poured out. So if, one way to think about the Feast of Booths is if this is the first fruits uh, festival, which is in May, several months later in the fall, we could call this the last fruits <coughs> Because the rainy season in Israel would start right around November, December. And actually, if you want to think about the weather in Israel, you really just have to think about the weather in California. <clears throat> For their crops to really grow, just like we were kind of lamenting last month and early part of this month, is, golly, it's June already. What's with this rain and what's with this coolness and all this kind of stuff? But then what is it like out, out here now? It's sun. Everything is starting to... To bloom. So there are important rains, rainy seasons, and then there are important dry, hot summers. And so this would, we're hopefully, Lord willing, in the hot summer part. So think of that as Passover, 50 days later, Pentecost is when the first stuff has come up. You get your first fruits off the trees, the first grain, you make your first loaves of bread. And uh, so this is the celebration. God's been good. We've had a great growing season and we're bringing our stuff before the Lord but the food is for us it's rejoicing it's a party and literally we're going to see it's a seven day party <coughs> of rejoicing uh, before God okay so let's read the instructions that God gives to his people uh, Nan can you read that first one? <coughs> Just the first? Yeah, the first one. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days in the Feast of Booths to the Lord, on the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. So when God says it's a solemn, a solemn assembly, you should not do any ordinary work. What's kind of the shorthand for that? Sabbath. Sabbath, right. <clears throat> and what is the Sabbath telling, telling us graciously from God? To rest. Rest, yeah. So this is a wonderful... Eight days of celebration. There's bookends. There's rest at the beginning. There's rest at the end. And there's party in the middle. That was seven days. Yeah, seven days. And there's sacrifices every day. But this is kind of the cool part. This is where it gets gets interesting. Burke, you want to read some? Okay. Sure. 
On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in the booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in the booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. All right. <coughs> cool. Well, we're going to have to draw this so we can kind of imagine it together here. So one of the things we've been learning in talking about uh, the Old Testament and the festivals and the feasts they had a purpose besides just eating, right? Although eating is good. It's a good reason to get together, right? God's not ashamed of bodies or eating or having fun. Um, but this passage tells us a little bit about the function of booths. Down at the bottom, two paragraphs. <coughs> or the bottom paragraph. You shall dwell in booths so that what? God wants them to. So that your children can know what happened. So here's you. And God did some awesome things back here. Bringing them out of of Egypt. And so they lived in tents. I'm going to say in a little bit. God even lived in a tent. Um. So this is a, just like Passover, this is a remember thing of how God delivered them. It's like, hey, remember when we used to camp out every day? Let's camp out again. This is a camp out of God's people in God's presence. And think about going to Jerusalem. Literally, there's thousands of people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate. Where are they going to stay? There's no Motel 6. Not everybody has a cousin in Jerusalem, right? So literally, this is kind of like Woodstock, Jewish Woodstock. You know, people are just camping out, partying, singing, rejoicing. There's stuff just going like 24 hours a day. You're just like so tired, but you're so pumped. And you're eating, and you're just like rubbing your tummy. Uh, But in all of that, you're supposed to remember, hey, we used to live in tents because we used to be slaves. This was our temporary home on the way out out of slavery. So God wants every generation to be thinking about what he did in that generation, that God is good. He's a deliverer for his people. So let's think about what they had to do. It says they were to gather fruits, branches, and boughs, right? <clears throat> so this is what it would have looked like. And you can obviously see pictures of this on the internet. There's obviously practicing Jews all over the world. Um, 
So they would put up some poles, kind of like bamboo or you know sticks, lash them together, kind of make like a little cover. And then they would get really big willow branches and really big palms, and then they would like stack them over like this, and then they would make stack them, kind of like a tiki hut kind of looking thing, right? And then they would maybe decorate it with cute little fruits, pomegranates, apples, um, <coughs> uh, citrons, some special fruits um, that they would use. <coughs> but God was trying to visually uh, tell them some stuff. Because remember we talked about tents? God lived in a tent too, right? What did his tent look like? He lived in a tent with panels decorated with branches and pomegranates. And what was the key feature in in the tabernacle? Since this is called the Feast of Tabernacles. What was the most important part of the Ark of the Covenant? Ark of the Covenant, right? These are angels, by the way. Um, they got wings back here, wings over here. I should really take art class. But, uh, <laughs> and in here it's called the Mercy. Let's see. What's interesting about the Feast of Booths is it was one week after Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement. And literally, what Kippur means is to cover. <laughs> So the high priest would go into the most holy place and sprinkle blood on the cover, on the wings of uh, cherubim that were covering the mercy seat. And so God is repeatedly through images and through, literally through his words, saying, I want you to make a tent for yourselves, because you used to live in a tent, and I want you to cover it with branches a week after the day of covering or atonement. And this is a, the story God is telling of his people, and he's doing it with visual aids. Before music videos, he's doing it through repetition and through symbolism and through concrete uh, concrete things. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think when it says <coughs> throughout your generations, and it said that the generations don't forget, and when it's, the children are all there, they're watching, they're asking, why are we doing this? And so they're participating in it, and it's so that it becomes real to them. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I mean, it's a reminder to the adults, but it's, it's the children of the next generation, and they're the ones that have to be able to tell it to their children. Yeah. And everything in the, in the Old Testament, when, when they fell away, when the Israelites fell away, it was because of the generations they didn't tell their children. Yeah, they did the opposite word. It says the children of Israel forgot. So they had gone through the rehearsal, and then they forgot what the punchline was. And the punchline was this word cover. I've covered your sins. Now I want you to hang out and party in a covering underneath. But actually God had always covered them. It says when he guided them in the desert, he covered them with a cloud. He shaded them and he led them. He shepherded his people. And so this idea of covering was just supposed to saturate their minds about, God has it all covered. He's covered my sins. He covers me 
on my journey. He, he protects me. He, he sets up uh, a place of protection for me. And so that I kind of teased out the punchlines. The overarching branches mean God is our cover. We would say in our modern terms, God has my back. He's covered me. He protects me. <clears throat> but this is a tent. This is a, a shack, so to speak. A temporary thing because God is leading us toward a permanent permanent home as the next blank. And then the feasting is a picture of taking in God's blessings, obviously by eating, and then we let out our rejoicing in His presence with his people. And so eating is huge in God's quote-unquote household. It's how he gets across um, his points and how he gathers his people and how he reinforces what it means to be his, his family. That's why family dinners are really important. It's not just about loading up protein and carbs. Eating McDonald's in the car it's totally different than Thanksgiving dinner, right? I hope. Right. I hope you don't have chicken nuggets on the road for Thanksgiving. Here's a hot apple pie, you know, for a deep fried apple pie. <clears throat> but there's something interesting else that... Any questions about that or any kind of insights or observations about <clears throat> covering... The Israelites were personally covered by God, but they were still prone to temptation and doubt and all that kind of stuff. Because we might say, well, if God literally covered me and did all that for me, dude, I'd totally follow him. And the story of the Israelites is like, dude, you totally wouldn't. Because all that they had from God, they, they forgot. So it means we're going to have to remind ourselves too and watch, watch our hearts. <clears throat> Okay, the second part of the ceremony wasn't uh, spelled out totally in uh, Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Exodus, but it's something that I will come out as we see uh, when we come to Christ here at the, at the end here. But there was a, a water ceremony. Obviously, when we're talking about fruitfulness and we're talking about rains, we're basically talking about if we don't have water, this whole thing doesn't work. Because Israel is a very hot desert it's like Livermore, it's like Modesto. Without rain, it's just depressing. Just really crispy, really dry, really, you know, no life, right? <clears throat> and so rain is so vital. Every culture has like its agricultural, you know, and fertility rituals and stuff like this. But God was constantly telling his people, like we've been studying in First Kings and Second Kings, rain is a sign of God's favor and God's blessing. And we don't do a rain dance. We come to our God and cry out to Him that He might bless us and might forgive us and give us uh, rain. So rain was obviously a miracle. It was never to be taken for granted, um, as we know in our, our climate. <clears throat> so they would celebrate uh, God providing water. And so literally the priests would, there'd be like processions like, Tour de France, right? There's like people lining both sides of the road, almost clipping, you know, the bike riders are almost clipping people. So just imagine thousands and thousands of people lining up the street between the temple and the pool of Siloam. And we hear a lot of the pool of Siloam in 
in the Gospels, because Jesus does some miracles there, that it's where people went to be healed and an angel would stir the water. So it was kind of a magical, mystical place, not only because it was water, but because it had powers, I guess we could say. So literally the priest would dip this huge jug of water into the pool of Siloam, and then he would march up the hill to the temple. And all the while, while he's marching, the whole nation, since they had memorized the book of Psalms, they would sing psalm after psalm after psalm. Everybody knew the words, everybody knew the tune. Imagine thousands and thousands of people singing the same psalm. Hosanna, God, save us, praise be to the Lord. With, with loud shouts and with rejoicing, with trumpets and tambourines, as the water is coming up to the temple, as they're celebrating, God's done it again. God's given us water. He's blessed us. And then the priest would pour out water around the altar, and they would rejoice that God had kept his covenant promises to bring rain and to bring life uh, to his people. But this is a beautiful uh, picture. Look at, uh, somebody read this verse. It starts on page one, but it flips over uh, to the second. Um, ben, can you read that? <coughs> one line's on the front page, and then you have to flip it. Will joy you will draw water from the walls of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. I think of this picture of God giving water isn't just the seasons happening and, oh, it's that time of year again. They were deeply personalizing this issue of water. It was God's water. It came from God's hand. It was part of God's covenant faithfulness. And it was poured out on the altar, which was the place where God says, I'll cover your sins. Someone else's blood will be uh, in your place so that your sins are taken away and you can be uh, be my people. <clears throat> and so Jewish uh, tradition says, if you want to see what a party is, come to the day when the water ceremony is happening. Because if you just think about most of my friends went to the U2 concert. Um, so I was a little bit jealous, right? But it, I talked to someone the next day like, we can't hear. Our ears are ringing, right? So imagine your ears ringing of hearing God's faithfulness praised and God's name praised and His promises and what He has done. <clears throat> and that God has poured out His blessing on us. And so literally they were overwhelmed with sound and with taste and, uh, and sights as they celebrated God's, God's goodness. I was wrestling with what order to put these things in because some of this is dealing with the, the future, not just uh, the past, which just like Passover points backwards to, um, or Lord's Supper points backwards to Passover, it also points forward to a marriage feast, which will be with Christ uh, forever. But it's very interesting that Zechariah, one of the last books of the Old Testament, talks about when God shows his glory in the gospel spreading to the ends of the world, the way that we're going to celebrate that is described in terms of the Feast of Booths, which is pretty pretty cool. I'll just read that for us. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year 
to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be, check this out, no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And this points us to what God is up to in everything that he does in the world. And we sing it in that song, Blessed Be the Name. How does it go? Every blessing you pour out, I turn back to praise. So what's wrong with the nations? What's their basic problem? And we would say the church too, but they're not that different, right? God pours out blessing. And here we're talking about a specific blessing, rain, right? And what is God's intent for us? Worship. Worship. And this is in the New Testament as well. Those who don't obey the gospel, meaning rejoice in God's blessings, there's only fearful punishment, right? Because we were meant to receive the blessings and not just soak them up, but to return it in joyful worship as God's people. And later on in Zechariah it says, And all the nations will be gathered as the people of Abraham. And even the bridle of the horses and the bulls used uh, in the cafeteria, basically, um, to put it into modern terms, will have an inscription, Holy to the Lord. Meaning things that formerly we thought were just lost or were wrong or were dirty, God has reclaimed them and repurposed them for praise. So that even the nations can be remade and restored to God and restored to praise. And it's interesting that it says, and what would that look like? It'll look like the Feast of Booths. Non-Jews will say, you've covered me. You brought me out of slavery and now I belong to you. I'm going to keep a feast and I'm going to rejoice in you. I won't rejoice in my strength. I won't rejoice in just my heritage or, or my army. I'm going to rejoice that I am one of God's people. And this is really a great picture of the gospel, even in some of the darkest periods of Israel's history when she's in captivity. God is showing his big heart for all the nations to return, restore them to himself. And the sad part, as we see in Romans, is that the Jews didn't get it. And Paul says, when the law is read, there's like a film over their eyes. They can't see that the fulfillment has come in Jesus. But he says... In the New Covenant ministry of the Gospel by the Holy Spirit is the film is removed. We can see God and we can get the punchline of the Feast of Booths. We can say it's not just about trees and branches and seven days and parties and water. <clears throat> it's about being covered by Him and being His, His people. So let's kind of look at this uh, last uh, segment here. God with us, dwelling in tents. <clears throat> We'll pick on Wade. Good to see you, Wade. Good to see you, too. Can you read uh, that Exodus 30? Yeah. <clears throat> and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go into the midst for us. For it is a stiff necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. 
And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are, whom you shall see, whom you are, shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. All right, good job. Okay, what happens right before this little clip is literally Moses receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai from God. And then Moses says, I want to know you. Show me your glory. And then he says he hid him in a rock. And then he let his glory pass and he declared his nature, that he's merciful, forgiving sins to a thousand generations of those who love him. And so... Really, the good news of the gospel is I'm this holy God, but I I cover my people, I I hide my people. But Moses is overwhelmed with this sense of God's holiness as he sees God's goodness. He says, we have a stiff-necked people. Please, Lord, go in our midst. Go with us. Because the point of being God's people is not just feeling special or being better than those other nasty Canaanite people, is to have God in the midst. So we have God's revelation of his mercy and grace, yet you hear Moses' plea, and then God says, I'll make a covenant with you. You know what's in the very next chapter? The instructions for the tabernacle. God says, I know what's wrong with you. I know what I'm getting into with this. Basically, imagine two people getting married. They're in premarital counseling. All kinds of weird junk comes out in premarital counseling. And the counselor goes, well, I don't think we'll be doing any more premarital counseling. Because <coughs> I think they're going to break up. Because this, just this earth-shattering truth has come out about these two people. And you think that there is no hope. But they both say, hey, we're both sinners. We're both broken. Let's depend on the grace of God. We'll do this. We'll, we'll be married and we'll work, work this out. Well, think about it like that in terms of God. Moses is saying, guess what you're getting, God? A stiff-necked people. You still want to marry us? And what does God say? Yes, I do. I make a covenant. And then he says, the way I'm going to live with you is build a tabernacle. And what the tabernacle is saying is, I wash you. And then I welcome you. I have to do something to you, and then you can surely come and be in my presence. So God is very willing to be right in the middle of us, but he has to wash us, and he has to cover us. And that is the beautiful thing of what he does. But that brings us to the last tabernacle. All this stuff, all the Feast of Booths, and all of the tabernacle, and all of the history of Israel is pointing uh, towards Jesus Nathan, can you read those next two passages? <clears throat> and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of not, oh, glory as of the only Son of the Father, from the Father, full of grace and truth. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water." Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, 
Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Alright. There's a few details I didn't quite get into, but I'll just tell them to you here. Another feature of the Feast of Booths, it was also a festival of light. So here we have water, light, food, covering, slash sacrifices, <coughs> feasting. <coughs> so there were basically these lampstands that were 40 to 50 feet high. So guys would literally have these jugs of oil and they would climb up ladders and dump oil in here and then light them up like a baseball field being lit up. So imagine these, this light just flooding the temple. And then you have trumpets blaring. You've got the, the singing of thousands about God providing water coming up to the altar. <clears throat> There's all this imagery. Think of all of thousands of branches and the wind blowing through the leaves, rustling. And then towards day seven in a hot desert wind, really crispy trees, crackly. So it's just like, it's loud. There, you can hear the rushing wind. You can see the light. You can hear the trumpets. You're just like overwhelmed. And in the midst of this, on the greatest day of the feast, on day seven, Jesus has the audacity to stand up in the temple where there's so much going on and, and there's so much awesome that you, you possibly can't contain it. He stands up and he shuts everything down and he says, if anyone's thirsty... Come after me. All this imagery going on, all this history, all these thousands of years, Jesus stops the record and says, Okay, guys, it's here. I'm here. We celebrate water. Guess what? I, I will give you water and it will not only satisfy you, in fact, it'll overflow you. It'll actually flow out of you. <clears throat> it's very interesting how the book of John works. John 1 says, And the word was the light, was the life of men, but men love darkness rather than light. At night, I'm stealing this from D.A. Carson, we heard him at the Acts 29. <clears throat> John 3, he talks to Nicodemus at night about what? Eric was there, this is a question. <clears throat> yeah, the new birth. And he uses the analogy of the spirit blows like the, like the wind, right? <clears throat> John 4, he meets a lady who had lived with a lot of men and hadn't been married to them. And Jesus talks about what? With her. The woman at the water. water. He talks about... She says, can't you give me this water so I'll never have to come back to this God-forsaken, hot, dusty well? He's like, the water I'm talking about will well up from you to eternal life. It'll keep bubbling. It'll be like an everlasting spring that will never, never go out. So again and again and again, you see these wonderful imagery, and then Jesus stands up in chapter 7 of John and says, you're actually thirsty for me. The water that you need isn't rain from heaven. It's the man from heaven. If you come after me... Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet 
The Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. <clears throat> this really says that all of our thirsts literally are meant to point to Jesus. We can think about sexual thirsts, what we've talked about it about marriage in Ephesians 5. Is you know those that expression of love and union will disappear because the ultimate reality is going to appear, which is being one with Christ forever. We will be one in Him. We will be wed to Him. That's the marriage feast of the Lamb. So all of these thirsts, all of these cravings, Jesus stands up and says, you're looking in the wrong place. I'm it. I'm the one that will satisfy. Not only just all the Old Testament, and us Bible geeks go, sweet, that's cool how that connected to that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But really, we're just supposed to be so amazed that all of it is in Him, and that He's the whole, the whole punchline. He's the whole point. <clears throat> and obviously, what the pre, uh, the context of John seven is literally, they're trying to figure out how they can kill Jesus. So even his brothers and disciples say, "You're going to go up with us, all males of Israel. Are you going to be obedient and go to the temple?" He says, "No, I'm going to skip it because if I show up, they're going to kill me." But he comes in, he kind of sneaks in. And then he goes, voila. <clears throat> On his terms, he's not just going as part of the crowd or going with his buddies, being just another male of Israel. He's standing up and being the great hope of Israel and all the nations. And so he looks a little tricky, but that's kind of what he's up to. He, he knows that he's not just going to get waylaid one day and end up on the cross. There's this whole drama unfolding, and there's time yet to be fulfilled uh, before that that happens. I think it's Jenny. Oh, I was just thinking about and now the spirit will flow out of his heart like the water says. The tabernacle and the temple is we are that. Yeah. So if you look at Ezekiel and a lot of people get kind of tripped up and we've talked about this a little bit before about dispensationalism and stuff about what, what does the future look like and some Christians are literally waiting for a rebuilt temple to happen and then Armageddon's going to happen so literally some people are genetically cloning red heifers to reduplicate what was done and so some guys and farmers in Mississippi are raising red heifers so that the temple can be rebooted so the end of the world can happen so I mean even kind of chuckle I was like I mean these guys are really serious and obviously they're very <coughs> hardcore about being obedient to this <coughs> but if you look at the temple in Ezekiel the dimensions aren't quite right. It doesn't look like Solomon's temple. It doesn't look like Herod's temple. But there's a feature of it that really points to what God is doing. And obviously the New Testament says we're his temple filled by his spirit. We're living stones built together. We offer up a sacrifice of praise. But one of the awesome features is, guess what runs out of this temple? A river that waters the nations. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper and turns into an ocean. That yeah, until it covers the whole earth. So that the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the water covers the sea. So this is that all this imagery of eternal life welling up into us and literally drowning the world with the grace of God. And that's good news for us who are kind of like, man, we're a bunch of these little churches and we're trying to hold on teaching you know simple truths of the gospel. Are we ever going to be successful? Are we ever going to take hold in this culture? And kind of the, the picture of the, the Bible is, the answer is yes, because this is eternal life welling up in God's people, and this becomes a flood that overtakes the world. Because what does Jesus say? Behold, I've overcome the world. 
even your faith, meaning we're part of this victory that God is bringing to the whole world. <clears throat> so much so that Zechariah 14 describes the nation celebrating the Feast of Booths. They're God's people covered by Him, rejoicing at His provision. So we don't, we trade our idolatry, our worship of uh, fertility goddesses or stuff to get our, our vitality or get our, our livelihood. We start to see this as God's covenantal care for us. We don't just talk about the economy. We don't just kind of lament everything, how much it sucks. We say, God loves me and he gives me all that I need. It's different than paychecks. It's different than dependability, unemployment, all of that. God provides for me. And this gives us a language and also a way to think about God covering us and then celebrating that again and again. And finding a way as Christians to, to have a feasting lifestyle and a remembering lifestyle of all that God has done for us in Christ and uh, we're about to do it in there we do it every week we do it in small group we do it in uh, Christian fellowship to just really rejoice in God's bounty in our lives and not turn to other strategies uh, when God so graciously pours out everything uh, in Christ any questions or uh, comments about I have a couple. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> All right. Uh, first of all, the water ceremony was yeah. that on the last day of the feast of booths, or yeah? It? So it's usually at the at the last day. Is it what he called yeah. the great day? That's why it's yeah. called the great day. Okay, cool. And then secondly, uh, when you know when like Peter, they're like up on the mountain of transfiguration, and Peter's like, let's make some booths. Is that like related to this at all? Or yeah, because check out Luke nine, and it says, and it was eight days after. The Day of Atonement. Okay. I think that's a pretty sweet picture, he says. Because what was he thinking? He's like, this is really awesome. And then he does this really random thing like, let's make some booths. <laughs> <laughs> and most people say, like, Peter's so weird. Or, like, he wants to <laughs> bottle this, like, retreat experience and, like, package it. And it's like, let's take this on the road. It's going to be called Mount of Transfiguration Theme Park or something. You know, and so we kind of mock Peter. But it's like, duh, it's the Feast of Booths, shouldn't we? Just like, we've got Elijah, we got Moses, we got Jesus. Sounds like the most awesome Feast of Booths festival ever. You know, so let's set up <laughs> booths, right? We got trees, let, let's do it, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I was reading some commentaries, and they're like, dude, this is a slam dunk. It's like eight days, booths, you know? Yeah, I think there's something to that. <clears throat> Jewish people would go, Whoa. we're kind of like, eight days, whatever. Cool, interesting, you know. And there's very interesting, there's another holiday at the end of the Feast of Booths called Simchat Torah, where literally they march around the streets partying with copies of the scripture, basically, we got God's word, woo! You know, just basically, like, we could call it like Bible Day, you know, it's like, what if all schools shut down and people had big parties in the Rose Bowl for Bible Day? That's literally what Jewish people do. And if you look in, in John 7, the very next thing that Jesus does the next day, it says, and he sat down in the temple and he taught everyone. Everyone came to him. Because guess what? Here's the word. Telling us what the word is about on Simchat Torah holiday. Here's Jesus, the word, spilling out what the Torah really meant. But there's just some really cool kind of historical uh, stuff that we don't get just because we don't think in this Jewish calendar. Stuff. So, so yeah, there's some. I was geeking out on that kind of stuff. Like I don't even know how to put it all 
all in here. So, <clears throat> so yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, good, good insights. So, let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have your presence. Now the Spirit has blown into our hearts uh, by your sovereign grace, so that we now know that we're covered and that we belong to you. We pray that we would have a constant uh, feasting uh, mindset in your presence and that we would want the nations to come to the party and know that they too are covered, and that every blessing you pour out, that we would teach them that the right response is repentance and praise. And so we pray that we would respond as the nations that have been bought by you, that we would repent and praise you uh, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.